Good morning. It's Patricia Murphy. It's Thursday. This is Seattle Now. In April, King County voters will get to decide if they want to fund five new mental and behavioral health crisis centers. These centers promise some intensive but temporary plans. It's a pivot from the long-term solutions the city has utilized over the years. Seattle Times mental health reporter Hannah Ferfaro is here to dig into the mental health plans of the past, how far we've come, and how much further we have to go. But first, let's get you caught up. Two weeks ago, Starbucks refused to make interim CEO Howard Schultz available to testify before the Senate Health, Education, Labor and Pensions Committee. And now a new card. Seattle Times reports committee chairman Bernie Sanders has set a vote for next week on whether to issue Schultz a subpoena forcing him to testify March 15th. The committee wants to hear more about how Starbucks is responding to the unionization of its stores. Schultz will be replaced as CEO next month. Washington is one of only seven states that don't require clergy to be mandatory reporters for child abuse or neglect, but possibly not for long. Senate Bill 5280 passed unanimously this week. There's a similar bill introduced in the House. The Senate bill would require clergy to report child abuse or neglect unless it's between a religious advisor and an advisee, something called clergy penitent privilege. Ours is one of two states that protect clergy penitent privilege, and the Washington State Catholic Conference is urging lawmakers not to change that. And the Emerald City apparently has had more snow than the Big Apple. Meteorologists over at Como crunched the numbers. They say Seattle has accumulated just over eight inches of snow, a pattern for the last three years. Meantime, in New York, they're in a snow drought with just 2.2 inches. Usually, they have around 24 inches by this time of year. There is still time for both of us. I grew up on the East Coast and have definitely enjoyed an Easter snowstorm or two. And the National Weather Service in Seattle is predicting a rain-snow mix through the weekend. In the 90s, Seattle was bursting with new ideas. There was grunge, of course, and Microsoft. But some of the city's lesser-known innovations centered on mental health. Seattle was in the midst of a mental health crisis at the time, and in response, built a new facility in the city's core, filled with beds for a wide range of care needs. Time magazine wrote about the care model. It called Seattle a place of hope. For a time, more than a dozen facilities existed around the city. Seattle propped up 548 mental health beds with long-term care attached. Today, roughly 261 exist. Seattle is still in need of mental health beds that come with 24-hour care and resources. That number is only growing. Hannah Ferfaro covers mental health for the Seattle Times. She reported on the city's growing need since the 90s and the shift to shorter-term care. Hey, Hannah, really glad you're here. Thanks so much for taking the time. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Time magazine lauded El Rey for its innovative approach to long-term mental health care back in the 90s. What was different about the approach that made it so hopeful? One thing that was different or unique about it compared to the old model of treating folks with serious mental illness is it was actually based within the community. So if you go back further in time into the 70s and 80s, we think about the deinstitutionalization movement, which is taking people out of large state hospitals where they may have been living for years or even decades away from cities and communities and finding places that they could live residentially in their hometown or in a city, you know, like in Seattle. And so El Rey was unique in that it had three levels of care. 
So folks who needed long-term intensive mental health treatment, folks who might be transitioning, um, but but still need you know months or maybe even years of treatment, and then people who were more independent. And so there were folks who actually had kitchenettes and they could still receive mental health treatment, um, but they were on their way to living more independently. So these places accommodated a large amount of need from people who could mostly live independently to people who needed round-the-clock care. So now we're in a situation where we don't have enough beds, and I want to know what happened and what shifted. When did things shift? It looks like the biggest shift happened around 2008. And so to best understand this, you have to think about, you know, first we have only a handful of providers in King County. So there's a couple of agencies that are providing a majority of care. In 2008, one of the biggest providers, Community House Mental Health Agency, leases were up actually on a number of their facilities. And at the same time that their leases were up, the state of Washington sanctioned a number of their facilities for really poor living conditions. There are also, you know, financial pressures on other agencies. And so we started to see mergers with these mergers, which of course are cost-saving measures, then you start seeing streamlining of care. Um, there are other pressures like workforce shortages that came into play. All of these things contributed, you know, to put us under the kind of stress that we see today. Yeah, there's a lot in that story. I mean, there's a need. There's the city's ability, the county's ability to step in and do something. Who did you talk to that helped you understand the moment and the change today? It's incredible to see the number of people who've been involved. The head of Community House Mental Health Agency When I met with him, he actually had a binder full of leases that his agency had operated for many years. And, you know, some of these places go back 10, 20, 30 years. Um, He had a timeline that he created that showed the ebb and flow of beds over the years. And actually, that was really critical for me as I was doing some data reporting for this story. And in talking with folks who were around when those decisions were made, there were a few threads that came through. At that time, you know, I think a lot of folks were thinking we need to get folks not just into treatment facilities in their communities, we actually need to get them into more independent living situations in their communities. And so that's where the role of permanent supportive housing comes in. Permanent supportive housing is for people who have low incomes. You do not have to have a mental health diagnosis. You're signing a lease on an apartment, but you have access to mental health treatment and substance use treatment as you need it. It's not around-the-clock care like the mental health beds that I was describing earlier. So at the same time that you have this movement towards more independent living, um, there's also facilities that have fallen into disrepair, these mental health facilities that we've been talking about. County leaders at the time, instead of wanting to invest in fixing up facilities, decided that it might be okay or best to let those close. The problem, of course, was that we do not have enough affordable housing in Seattle and housing prices have only gotten more expensive. So really, we were not able to fill in those gaps. In a way, the time has passed, like you said in your article, to purchase those large pieces of property at a reasonable rate to make these spaces available. You know, I wonder if the intention to provide solutions was there, but we lacked the follow through or consistent funding. How did funding for these kinds of setups change over time? My understanding is that there were investments after deinstitutionalization to build and rehab 
facilities that were existing, you know, the El Rey, for instance, it was an old hotel and it was retrofitted uh, to become a mental health facility. And there, and there were capital dollars to do that. And there, of course, was money for the actual mental health services uh, that were provided. And so agencies, once they had their building up and running, they could get reimbursed um, through Medicaid, Medicare for the services that they were providing. But unfortunately, there were never really the maintenance funds to keep these places going. And so from what I learned in my reporting, a lot of these agencies actually had to apply for grants. Uh, they got their funding in real piecemeal ways. Sometimes it was there, sometimes it wasn't. So it was incredibly unpredictable. You know, it was really hard to convince lawmakers to want to fund a new boiler, for instance. And so over time and over decades, these buildings in many cases actually became really uninhabitable. You know, it makes me wonder, were there things that the old model got right? back in the day. And what did some of the providers tell you about maybe some of those things that were worth carrying forward? Overwhelmingly, you know, I heard from folks that there were a lot of issues with these congregate care settings. So, you know, as folks were coming out of institutions, I think there was this idea that it would be more humane um, to have them in communities. But the way that these facilities were set up and ultimately not maintained did have pretty significant consequences on people who live there. You know, there are stories in old newspaper clippings about people who died by suicide in some of these settings, um, you know, really sort of dirty floors, walls, that kind of thing. Uh, and so I think, you know, there was an agreement that without maintenance, these places were not hospitable um, for people and they were not a good environment to live in. That said, I think this idea that people can receive long-term around-the-clock care, that's something that a lot of people think we still need, and then there are people who need that. So we're talking about people with serious mental illness, um, and these are folks who you know, might be headed toward recovery, and then these might be folks who've been actually in the system for, for decades. There is this agreement that we need it, and we st certainly still have some of these beds, but we do need more. And, you know, we all know what happens when people don't get appropriate mental health care. Uh, so next month, Hannah, April 25th, in fact, King County voters will decide whether to levy taxes to fund five new mental and behavioral health crisis centers. How could this levy remedy some of the issues we have been talking about? These crisis centers uh, will mostly help folks who need short-term care. So uh, what's unique about them is that you could walk in, for instance, and get more of an urgent care style of treatment. There will be opportunities for folks who need longer care, uh, you know, 23 hours or so to stabilize. And then people who need maybe 14 days, um, which is one sort of length of stay that's standardized for people who need a, um, more intensive treatment. These crisis centers will not be residential beds. They're not the kind of beds that I reported about over the weekend. And so I think all of these things are certainly interrelated. People who are in crisis certainly need care. But in reporting this story, one of the things that really came through is that we need more money and more services upstream to prevent crisis in the first place. And so I think that while the levy certainly would support people who need help now, um, there's still a lot of questions about availability of outpatient care on the one hand and also the more intensive residential treatment that some people do need. Yeah, yeah. So, Hannah, how are lawmakers ensuring that we just don't throw money at an issue and ignore it for another 30 years? 
we'll have to see. You know, I think Governor Inslee certainly has a plan to transform mental health care in communities. And the idea with that plan is to build more community-based mental health treatment centers. And it's been really challenging, I think, to get these off the ground. These are 16-bed facilities, and the reason they have 16 beds is tied to federal regulations. I think that presents a lot of challenges just in terms of getting people into care. Communities themselves have put up fights against, you know, siting issues and not-in-my-backyard sentiments. And so I think that while there are certainly plans and there have actually been ribbon cuttings on some of these places, uh, it's been really hard to build. But that's one piece, I think, of a bigger picture to try to get more care in communities. Hannah Farfaro, really appreciate it. Thanks so much for your reporting on this. Thank you. Hannah Farfaro covers mental health for the Seattle Times. You can read her piece, Where Did King County's Mental Health Beds Go? at the Seattle Times. That link is in the show notes. Thanks for listening to Seattle Now. Today's episode was produced by Brandy Fullwood. The show is also produced by Caroline Chamberlain Gomez, Jenny Cecil Moore, Claire McGrain, Brooklyn Jamerson Flowers, and Vaughn Jones. Matt Jorgensen does our theme music. Seattle Now and KUOW Public Radio are members of the NPR Network. It's an independent coalition of public media podcasters. You can find more shows in the network wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Patricia Murphy. See you tomorrow. Thank you.